Philippians chapter 4 in your Bibles, please. We finish the book of Philippians, the epistle of Paul to the Philippians this evening. God's design and giving. If there were to be a primary overarching biblical theme that I would desire believers, those who already understand their redemption in Christ, to get a hold of in any context. Not, it's, it's, it's not a biblical doctrine. It's a biblical theme because it spans every doctrine. If there was a biblical theme that I could, one biblical theme outside of redemption, right? Uh, the theme of redemption that I could get believers to grab a hold of, it would be understanding and appreciating the nature of God's design in things, that God has designed things in a certain way. He's designed the world to function in a certain way. He's designed us to function in a certain way. He has designed everything to happen in a certain way. And when we as individuals or as families or as churches, even societies, when we identify and align with those elements of God's design, even if we don't believe everything about the God of that design, when we when we identify those elements of God's design, we find unfathomable benefits and blessings. We talked about it just a few moments ago as it related to family. Even the unbelievers who identify and align with God's design in family will be blessed. We can talk about it as it relates to a society. So we think about our country at this time with the election coming up the appreciation for the country as it was founded. Not everyone by any means that founded this country was a believer. But what they had done is identified elements of God's design and aligned with them and there was in it blessing. Throughout the epistles of Paul to the Philippians, we've considered any number of elements of God's design. Chapter two, God's design as it relates to others and myself. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man on the things of others. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or, or an unbeliever. You get a hold of that principle, there's blessing. Chapter three, God's design as it relates to temporal versus eternal gain. That's one that only a believer can understand. Count all things but loss for the excellency of the glory of Christ Jesus my Lord. If you get a hold of that, you get a hold of the fact that we're only here for a few years, then we're gone and then we have eternity. So you live for that, not what we talked about this morning, right? Get a hold of that. There's blessing. Chapter four, we've already seen God's design as it relates to emotional contentment and peace. God's design for how it is we live in a manner whereby we can be anxious or careful for nothing and have our anxieties and cares replaced with the peace of God which passeth all understanding. That we put our minds on things which are virtuous and praiseworthy that we seek those things, that we, we, we contend for those things and then learning in whatsoever state we are, as we talked about last week, therewith to be content. And recall that that was our context last time. Paul spoke of the degree to which he had learned through living in abundance or suffering, lack, to be content in whatsoever state he was learning that in Christ and through Christ he was able to live in whatever state God chose for him. And we saw last time that Paul was transitioning into, into various statements as it related to the church's giving to him, right? The, the gifts and the blessings of the church of Philippi toward him. And Paul is saying this to a church who had just sent him what we would understand, at least presumably, to be substantial material support. Recall all the way back in chapter 1, Paul had thanked God for the manner in which the church had been a constant source of, of material support to him throughout the years. The last thing Paul wanted to do, however, or, or, is imply that he was not grateful for the manner or degree of the support the church had given to him. But, simultaneously, he wanted to make it very clear to the church that God would supply his needs, that he was not afraid or, or, or ever felt as though he was abandoned. And so he was trying to walk this line 
of letting the church know how much he loved and appreciated them for what they had done while simultaneously giving the glory to God, not the church, right? Have you ever been there before? Where somebody blesses you and, and, and you, you, you're thankful for the blessing and yet you truly know, as we all know, that God used them to bless you, but God, God's the one that blessed you. And yet you also understand the human element of not wanting, you don't just ignore the person. This is something that a pastor has to contend with all the time, right? Get a birthday card with, a, with, with some cash in it or somebody sends you a check in the mail or whatever it is and, and you need it and you're so thankful for it and you're thankful to them for it. But what you're really doing is you're getting on your knees and saying, God, I know that one way or another you are going to provide for my needs. You use them to do it. And, yet, and you want to reflect to them that thanksgiving while simultaneously making it very clear that, that you, you know, God provided for me, right? And Paul is trying to teach a lesson here while simultaneously thanking them. A lesson about God's provision, a lesson about how God has always provided for him. And so Paul is, is in, in, in a manner of speaking, trying to walk that fence, walk that line of thanking them and appreciating them, and rightfully so, while also expressing a principle here that says God is the one that supplies our needs. The Philippian church was the vessel. God was the one who supplied. And so Paul wants to teach this lesson about confidence in the Lord and provision, the design of God in giving. And he wanted to do so in a way that affirmed his gratefulness and appreciation for the provision of God's people. And that's what Paul's going to do. And through it, we're going to learn some important lessons about the nature of how God wants us to give, the mindset of giving both as the giver and as, as the receiver. And then through this, have the opportunity to align with God in both our giving and our receiving. So we'll pick up in verse 13 for context. We got through verse 13 last week. And Paul writes this, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. Paul expressly hopes that the church does not mistake his meaning as it relates to his contentment. Think back to last week. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, right? So he's saying I can, I can live in this state of, of material lack. I can live in this state of material abundance and either way I am content. So he, he gives them this lesson that says nothing that he has received from them has intrinsically affected his contentment, but that doesn't mean he's not grateful, right? That doesn't mean he's not thankful. Just before that, he, he speaks to them in verse 10. About He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. So he's rejoicing in their care. He's, he's thankful for this. And we'll see exactly why he's thankful. Or, uh, um, yeah, in, in, in just a few moments, we'll see exactly why he was so very thankful and so very grateful. And that's a part of the lesson. So Paul expresses, he, he expressly hopes that the church does not mistake his meaning as it relates to contentment or as it relates to gratefulness. Much to the contrary, he says, they did do well in communicating with his affliction. Notice this word communicate. Literally means to share company with. And it speaks of sharing Paul's burden, sharing in his burden or sharing with his burden. We'll see in verse 15 a derivation of the same word used and again translated communicate which literally means fellowship. And if you recall way back in Philippians chapter one, I don't know how many of you remember that, but if you recall back then, in verse five, Paul told them that he thanked them for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I connected that element of fellowship with the gospel to their financial support, to the fact that they had given to him once and again to their need. And I, I, I told you, I expressed this conviction on the basis of this passage here, that twice within this passage, where Paul is explicitly speaking about how they have provided financially for him, he used the word either communicate, uh, fellowship or fellowship with, both translated here communicate. He used that word to express how it was that he sees their giving. And that's why I connected it to giving in chapter one. 
that in consistency, not contradiction to Paul's expressions of contentment, he is in fact very thankful that he was in a state of abundance at that time due to the generosity of the church at Philippi. And notice, as we'll talk about in our time of application, that Paul also expressed their giving as a means by which the church associated themselves with and shared in carrying Paul's burdens and afflictions. They did not sit in prison with him. They were not able to uh, split time with him, right? You sit in jail for a few days, I'll sit in jail for a few days. But what Paul says is, you shared with me in my burden. You helped carry the load by giving to me. Again, we'll talk about this in our application time today. Continuing in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated, there's our word, with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity." we get a much clearer picture of the nature of the Philippians' assistance to Paul here in verses 15 and 16. Paul speaks of their fellowship, their participation, that word fellowship, they're speaking of them giving to him. And he tells them that this fellowship was concerning giving and receiving. That's why we know it was giving, right? And he reminds them of that which they already knew, that in what Paul calls the beginning of the gospel, Presumably here, those early days of the ministry, early being a relative term, it was during his second missionary journey, right, that he went to the church of Philippi. In those early days of ministry, as we would understand them, after he had ventured first into Thessalonica, where he had to flee for his life, and then into Macedonia, and then venturing into Achaia, Paul says, or leaving Macedonia into Achaia, Paul says, no church communicated with me. No church sent to him and continually ministered to his needs except the Philippian church. Now, this is a big deal. Okay. Philippi was a part of Paul's second missionary journey. I mentioned that. By, the time, by this time, he'd already planted churches in Cyprus and Pergia. That's supposed to fill the whole screen. I'm really sorry for the formatting here. Cyprus and Perga and Derby and Lystra and Iconium. He had first been sent out from the church of Antioch with Barnabas, recall. And then for that second missionary journey, there was a tremendous uh, uh, disagreement between him and Barnabas. So they each went their own ways. Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas. And they went through that second missionary journey at which point he was given the Macedonian call and he went into Philippi as technically the second, but the first major city in Macedonia where, of course, he met Lydia, who was a, uh, um, a worker in, in, in purple, and, and, and built a church there in Philippi. All of these churches, all of that first journey, the church at Antioch, the church at Jerusalem, they had all been aware of Paul's ministry. Many of them had personally benefited from the ministry, but Paul says only the church at Philippi was a consistent source of support for him, as he went to Thessalonica, as he went into Achaia, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, throughout his journeys. Following Philippi, he went to Berea, then to Thessalonica, then to Corinth, then to Ephesus. And the church of Philippi was the only church who had consistently given to those needs. What we know thus is that this was a truly generous church which had a special and particular heart for Paul and for his ministry. And Paul is thankful, isn't he? He's expressing deep thanksgiving, acknowledging the tremendous blessing that has been given to him, and by all means making sure they understand he's not minimizing the importance of their love and their gifts to him. But he is going to redirect perhaps their thinking as to why it is that he's so thankful. We'll see that in a few moments. His hope, he hopes to frame their mindset in exactly why their gift was so important to him and where his rejoicing came from. And he needed them to understand that the primary source of his rejoicing was not actually in that he was given supplies, whether that was money or things, we don't know. But that, not, not explicitly that he was given stuff. And that's why he, he, he founded this by saying, 
Whether I'm, I'm lacking or whether I'm abounding, I'm content. Because he needed them to know that he was very thankful for their giving. And he rejoiced in their giving, but not because now he, he had new stuff. And so he says this in verse 17 as it relates to his rejoicing. He says, not because I desired a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul says his primary rejoicing was not that, his, that, that, that he had more stuff now or that he was given gifts and so he felt loved. It's really a blessing when a pastor feels loved. We all need that. But that was not his primary rejoicing. Oh, the church still loves me. Or, oh, now I can get that thing I was hoping to get. I've got, I've got funds now. His primary rejoicing was that there would be fruit that would abound to their account through their giving. What Paul recognized is that their giving was a mark of spiritual health and spiritual growth. It's like when a child, when, when, when my child comes up to me and says, hey dad, I took initiative today. I emptied the dishwasher and I put everything away and I reloaded it. And I rejoice and I commend them. But the primary rejoicing in that is not actually that the job got done, right? Not actually that the dishwasher got emptied and got refilled. The primary rejoicing was that my child is learning initiative, right? That my child saw a need, identified it, without having to be told, took the initiative of meeting that need, being a blessing to his family, serving others, and that's my rejoicing. That's what Paul's saying here. My primary rejoicing, Paul says, is not that you gave me stuff. It's that you are going to bear the fruit of obedience to God's design. Because when we align with God's design, there is always blessing. Their generosity toward Paul encouraged him that their lives before the Lord would be strengthened, their needs would continue to be divinely met because they were obeying the commission aligning with God's design. And that's how Paul frames his rejoicing in verse 18. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Here's where we specifically see that Epaphroditus was sent by the church, right? We've talked about it throughout. Why, why, why did I think Epaphroditus had been sent by the church and sent back to the church? Well, this is why. Because Paul said, you sent this through Epaphroditus. And then, of course, Epaphroditus got sick and then he got better and Paul didn't want him to go, but he, he, he needed to send him and we talked through all of that, right? And so he sent him back to the church with this letter and with Paul's rejoicing and, and, and with these instructions about how to correct the disunity and the dysfunction in their body. And he tells them that they met every one of his needs, particularly through the gifts which they sent through Epaphroditus. So he also does mention here, he says, my primary rejoicing was that you'll have fruit that abounds to your account, but make no mistake, I'm full and abound. I am full. I have all. I have everything I need now. Thank you. You have blessed me. And notice what he calls these gifts. An odor of a sweet smell a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. In this, Paul alludes to the pleasure that the Old Testament reflects in the heart of God when God's people obeyed God's voice and submitted themselves in obedience to sacrifices. The first time, the earliest description that, that would reflect this is actually in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. After Noah comes out of the ark and he builds an altar, and he sacrifices the clean animals on the altar. And the Bible says that, the, that as the, the smoke rose up from those sacrifices, that it was a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. And then we see it throughout at various times where as the sacrifices would be lifted up to the Lord, uh, the, the Bible describes them as a sweet savor. We also see this related to the prayers of the saints, right? That they are a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. So too, Paul says, your giving, Philippian church, was a sweet, an odor of a sweet smell, 
a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. It's just, I, I, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but just think about that for a moment. Think about the idea that you and I can do something that is intrinsically acceptable and well-pleasing to the Lord. The, the idea that I do something with a heart toward the Lord, with a, with a right intent, a right heart, I obey the Lord, I step out in faith, and the God of the universe who created all that is, of which I am one very, very tiny piece, for a very, very short time, sees it, knows it, and is well-pleased with me. What a thought. So Paul tells them that they have met his needs. And he expresses his rejoicing that they've served and obeyed and pleased the Lord. And they have pleased the Lord. And he expresses one more confidence in verse 19 regarding giving. He says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul expresses his confidence that as the church has given in abundance to meet his needs, that a part of God's pleasure in the obedience and open hand, the generosity of this church, is Paul's absolute confidence that God will supply their needs. You've given to me. Most likely, Paul would imagine, you've given sacrificial to, sacrificially to me. You've pleased the Lord. And because you've, you, you've done what is right, you've pleased the Lord, here's what you can know. God's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about that. The phrase we might often use as it relates to this, I, this concept is that you can't outgive God. A part of God's pleasure in the obedience and open hand of their, of their generosity is that God will supply for their needs according to his riches. Where God calls us to give, he will enable us both to give and then subsequently to live. Money is not an issue to God. Things are not a problem to God. God can take care of money. God, God, God can handle that. It's not for us to live our lives in constant fretfulness and worry regarding provision. And it is certainly not for us to close our hand of generosity because we worry about provision. Much to the contrary, if God lays it upon your heart to give, when you give, you will find that God will take care of you as you take care to obey him. Again, we'll come back to that in our application this evening. But I'd like to finish off the epistle. Uh, a few more verses left, four, four more verses. Let's read them together, verses 20 through 23. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul finishes the book with what is often called a doxology, then salutations and a final greeting. The concept of a doxology is a concise saying that expresses the glory and the majesty of God or glory and majesty to God. We find them all throughout Paul's writings. He, he enjoyed them very much. Paul's doxologies are typically a bit longer than the one that we see here in verse 20. To God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Simple, but exactly what this epistle has been about, right? setting ourselves aside for the glory of God. Looking past ourselves to glorify God. That as we live in the church in unity, as we seek into those things which are beyond ourselves, as we count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, as we become gatekeepers of our own mind and so live in contentment without anxiety, our church redounds to the glory of God. As we give to the needs of others in faithfulness, our church redounds to the glory of God. And this is the point. And then we have the salutations. He says, salute every saint. Recall that as Paul wrote this letter, Paul and Timotheus uh, were, were the, the ones who were the, the um, uh, senders of this letter. And 
he sent it in verse one of chapter one to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So he sends it to all the saints with the bishops and the deacons. And then of course he says, all the saints uh, um, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he sends his greetings. That word saint there, meaning holy ones, speaks throughout the New Testament of every believer, never. Once in the New Testament is it used to speak of a subset of believers, of special believers, voted in by the church into some elevated level of exaltation as we might see in the Catholic Church today. It is, however, used in the Bible to speak of angels, holy ones, saints, just as the word angel is used to speak of prophets. It's just the word messenger. It's the same word for, for, for the prophets as it would be for spiritual angels. Within this context, there's absolutely no reason to see anything other than Paul exhorting the leaders of the church, those that are reading this letter, to greet the believers, all the believers that are there, and then extends his greetings to them from the other brethren which are with him at this time. And specifically, he says, the saints which are present in Rome, and chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. I love this. Just this simple little salutation at the end of his letter. And he casually happens to mention that people ministering in the house of Caesar were believers and in the church of Rome. Now, whether they had been won through Paul's ministry or not, we do not know. But this is a blessed reminder, it really is, which falls outside the scope of our focus today and of which I don't necessarily feel like I should devote a sermon, but which really does matter. By this point in Paul's life, the emperor was either Claudius or it was the early days of Emperor Nero. Paul is in prison in Rome for the faith, writing this letter, a prison epistle, and yet, though he was in prison for his faith, though the Caesars had no interest in the things of the gospel or of, of Christianity, though many of the cities were hostile to Christianity, yet there were Christians serving in Caesar's household. Let us never forget those who are at every level of our government who are followers of the living Christ. Let us never forsake the hope that comes from knowing that God has his remnant. And like Daniel or Esther or Nehemiah in the courts of pagan kings, maybe, just maybe, there is a single godly man or woman right now in the halls of, of, of state government, in the halls of federal government, who God is using to speak into the ear of our leaders, to stand in the gap between God in this nation, between God and the churches of this nation. And perhaps even in our day of uncertainty, there's a godly man or woman that God has raised up to walk in those halls of government, the halls of justice, to be a subtle influencer in the affairs of men, raised up for such a time as this. Don't lose hope of that, because we've seen it. We've seen it with Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Esther, Nehemiah. We've seen it. It's recorded in the halls of some of the most pagan kings that ever walked the halls of a palace. There have been believers who have changed the course of history. Thus ends the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. Now let's apply this evening. And as we do so, I am going to focus on giving. Perhaps I could wrap a message around what I just said. I don't know that I'm going to, though. Uh, in these verses, I want to highlight four principles which we can draw related to giving from Paul's communication with the Church of Philippi here. Four principles as it relates to giving. Principle number one, proper giving is a way to help carry a burden. Now, before I get into the point itself, I want to make one more... I want to mention one more thing. Notice the beginning of each one of these is proper giving. I spoke this morning about the nature of, uh, of, of the actions that we take being by faith. And I took you to Matthew 6. 
And I want to take you there again for just a moment to define proper giving. Remember we read this. Let's read it again. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. The concept of doing alms is that of giving. And just as we spoke of this morning, so too I remind you this evening, Jesus warns against a manner of giving in the life of a believer that is primarily motivated not by obedience to God or love for one another, but rather motivated by pride or seeking the affirmation or the praise of men. And what Jesus taught is that those who give with an ulterior motive that they might gain all the more, right? This is the idea where I say, I'm going to give to God because then God is obligated to give back to me and I want to be a millionaire, so I'm going to give and he's going to give back and, and, and I'm going to get into this grand divine pyramid scheme, right? Whereby I, I give my seed money. This is what all the you know, television evangelists say. You give your seed money and God's going to give you back and, and so you send them a dollar and they send you five and say, see, this is how it works, right? And now you give your you know, hundred, a thousand dollars, whatever it might be, and then God's going to give it back to you. And of course, they never send you any more money, but, 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 but God's going to give it to you, right? This is, this, is, this is doing your alms to be seen of men. There's no reward in that. Or the praise of men so that you can, you can have the praise of men through the big check, so that you can have your picture up in the foyer of the church, so you can have your name on the plaque that says you donated the building, whatever it might be, that they might use their giving habits to appease their conscience or their guilt. I'm going to give to the church as a means by which to appease my conscience for the things that I'm doing. Uh, this is the idea in the Catholic church of indulgences, right? The idea that I'm going to buy my way out of sin or I'm going to buy my, my, my friends or my family's way out of purgatory by giving money to the church or using their giving habits to elevate themselves above, above other men in judgment. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. I've given more than them. I must be godlier than them. And God, of course, says you should expect no divine reward, no divine merit, no well-pleasing to the Lord if this is how you give. Because your reward is found in the thing that you seek. And what you've sought is the praise of men. When you get the praise of men, you have your reward. You're not speak, seeking spiritual reward at that point. You're seeking temporal reward. And God is not duped. God is not duped by your false motives. He will never be duped by your false motives, by my false motives. It doesn't work that way. God cannot be manipulated into blessing me because I make a show of giving a lot of money. God doesn't want our money. God wants our hearts. God doesn't need your money. God needs your heart. Whether or not you give to support this ministry has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not this ministry will be sustained. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean God won't use you to sustain this ministry. But what I'm saying is God doesn't need your money. God wants you. He wants your obedience. He wants your heart. That is what God wants. God will provide for this ministry as we trust and obey. And he will most likely use you to do it. But he wants you. He wants your heart. And this is what God will bless. He will bless your obedience. He will bless your love. And when God has your heart, this is the other side of this, so don't get me wrong here. Take note, once God has your heart, don't be surprised when he tells you to give your money. Don't be surprised when he tells you to give your time. Don't be surprised when he tells you to give your efforts. Once he has your heart. Because when we're yielded, God is going to then use you. You are a, a vessel fit for the master's use. And he's going to use you to bless others, to do his work on this earth. And that's, what, that's exactly what we want, right? We want him to use us to do his work. Now, the point of doing our alms in secret is not explicitly that no man may know the gift or the offering. We have a box in the back rather than passing around a plate. I think it better aligns with the spirit of this command, although I'm not saying passing a plate is evil or wrong. I think it better aligns with the spirit of the command, but here's the thing. 
Unless you give it anonymously, somebody is gonna write down how much you gave. They're gonna know. If you write a check, they're gonna know who wrote that check, right? Whether or not you put your name on the envelope or whatnot, someone's gonna know. So you say, oh no, I'm in an existential crisis where I can't give because someone's gonna know. That's not the point, right? The point is not that nobody's allowed to know that you gave. The point is that you're not seeking unto men to know, that you are not seeking for the means of other people knowing, that you don't go up to someone and say, hey, did you hear about my anonymous donation this week? <laughs> let, me, let, let me tell you all about that anonymous donation I gave. That's the point, right? And the Lord who sees in secret, the Bible says, he will reward you openly. Regardless of how public the gift may be, the gift is one given between you and God in your heart, and that's the point. This is the spirit of Jesus' teaching in Luke 21, verse 3, where Jesus was sitting before the temple and he saw a certain poor woman. And the Bible says that as everyone was casting their money into the treasury, this certain poor woman came and cast two mites into the treasury. And Jesus proclaimed that this woman has cast in more than any other. And everyone was confused. This poor woman, she just gave two mites. And Jesus said, yes, but the others gave of their abundance. This woman gave all the living she had. And so when we see this phrase, proper giving, nobody knew that this woman had given everything that she had. No one needed to know that she gave everything she had. She was just giving. She was giving to the Lord. When we speak of proper giving, I don't speak of self-righteous giving or of judgmental giving or of presumptuous giving or of manipulative giving. That's not proper giving. So that's not the context of what I'm telling you about this evening. But when you give out of the abundance of your heart and love for the Lord manifest in your generosity toward others, that is when these four points that I'm about to give you apply. Back to the points. Proper giving is a way to help carry a burden. When Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 commands us, bear you one another's burdens. When Romans chapter 12 tells us, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Tells us to distribute to the necessity of the saints. Tells us to rejoice with them that rejoice, to weep with them that weep. There are any number of ways that we can bear one another's burdens. There are any number of ways that we can share with the church in the burden of the gospel the burden of suffering, the burden of sorrow. Sometimes bearing a burden is simply listening. Take someone out for coffee, sit across from them, zip your lips and let them just overflow. Sometimes that's what it means to bear a burden. Sometimes bearing a burden is as simple as taking a bouquet of flowers to someone or giving them a call on the phone and saying, hey, I'm praying for you today. These are all different ways that we can carry a burden. Sometimes we're called to go, to serve, to be the solution. Maybe the burden of the gospel in some far off con country, your, maybe your way of carrying that burden is to go and literally put that burden on your back. But other times, the call is to give when we prayerfully consider which missionaries to support in any given year, what we're doing is we are prayerfully considering which missionaries have a burden that needs help bearing. And we're not necessarily sending them manpower, although we could do that. We don't have people that are called to go over there and, and dedicate their lives, although that might happen. But when we're praying about what to do with our money, we are praying just as much about how to help somebody bear their burden. How to help the gospel go forth in some place, in some context. Their burden of sharing the gospel regarding the field of their calling. When we prayerfully consider times to help the brethren financially among us, to, to meet the needs of those who are among us, what we are considering is whether or not we are called and are led and there's a need to bear, help somebody bear a burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. Because when we give as unto the Lord, to brethren in any context, 
What we are doing, if it's proper giving, is we are helping to bear a burden. It is ministry, and it is essential ministry. Point number two, proper giving causes your spiritual fruit to abound. When we obey the Lord, exercising faith in the word of God, following the teachings and examples of our Savior, Jesus Christ, what is the inevitable result? Galatians chapter six, verses six through eight tell us. Let him that is taught in the word communicate, there's that word communicate again, and it, it's speaking again of giving money <laughs> or, or meeting, meeting material needs, put it that way. Communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh, of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. In relation to this morning's sermon about rewards, Life everlasting here is not talking about you, you, you do this and you'll go to heaven. Life everlasting is talking about that more abundant life, the rewards that are awaiting us on the other side, right? So Paul couches his teaching in the context of the church, providing for the needs of those who are ordained among them to teach the word. And he tells them, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't fool him. You can't go behind his back. What a man sows is what he will reap. You're not going to manipulate or fool God. You cannot get around this principle of design in this world that you will reap what you sow. When you plant to the flesh, you will harvest fleshly things. When you plant to the spirit, you will harvest spiritual things. It's simply the way this life works. And the principle applies to every facet of our lives, the way we think, the way we speak, the manner of living, where we commit our resources in this life. When you minister to another man through proper giving, when you bear those burdens as God has commanded you, when you offer up those sacrifices acceptable unto the Lord, you can know as sure as the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening that you will reap spiritual things. There's reward there, Christian. Paul says, I rejoice not so much in that you met my needs, but in that there is fruit that has abounded to your account through this. Paul rejoiced in that. He didn't wonder. He didn't sit around wondering, I wonder if this is going to bear fruit in their lives. It has to. It has to bear fruit in their lives. It will. It's God's design. It's the way it works. There's no getting around it. There's no circumventing it. It's the way it works. You will reap spiritual things. You will reap life, not corruption, because no man can defy the way that God has designed this world to work. You, can, you can't defy physics. Physics wins every time. You can't defy gravity. Gravity wins every time. You can't defy time. Time always wins. I can't cheat time. I can't cheat physics. I can't cheat these things. You can't cheat the principle of sowing and reaping. The principle will win every time. It's as real as the air you breathe. To that end, if you don't know whether or not you should give, and your heart aches to be with the Lord on these things, always default to give. You will not be ashamed because it will bear fruit. Proper giving, not so that you can be seen of men, not to manipulate God. Proper giving, you will bear fruit. Fruit which we all long for, fruit unto life everlasting, the fruit that remains gold, silver, precious stones. If we're going to err, let it be on the side of generosity. If we're going to be hesitant, let us be hesitant about stopping giving, not starting giving. Not because God can't do it without us. Not because God's people can't survive without us but because we long for the fruit that is the inevitable harvest of hearts which are aligned and obedient to the design of God who is our creator. It's worth noting that every time the sowing and reaping principle is taught in the New Testament, every time it is taught within the context of giving. Now, the principle extends beyond giving, but never is it taught within the, the, the context of our thought life. Never is it taught within the context of the words that we say. It's always taught in the New Testament within the context of giving. 
And we'll come back to another one of those teaching passages in our final point. Point number three, however. Proper giving is a definitive form of God-pleasing worship. When we think of a call to worship, we customarily think of singing. We talk about a worship service, and when we talk about worship, we're thinking about primarily the manner in which we sing. Now, giving is worship, and prayer is worship, and all these things are worship, but primarily we're thinking of singing, right? And that's for good reason. For such worship is worship when it's done in the Spirit. But you know what's interesting? I don't find any New Testament passage that likens the lifting up of our voices and singing to God as a sacrifice or that likens it to, to, to an Old Testament sacrifice of sorts. But when Paul describes to the Philippian church giving, and he, des he describes it as an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. Perhaps the clearest connection to worship in the New Testament is right here. And it's not singing, it's giving. What shows God his worth more than obedience to him? What reflects to God his worth, which is what worship is, right? A reflecting to God his worth more than our trust, more than taking that thing which is so necessary for me to live and putting it to work for God's purposes rather than my own. What could be a greater reflection of God's worth than that? Setting aside the desires of my body in obedience to the Lord's command. If you aren't regularly giving, Christian, in the name of the Lord, may I put it this way? If you aren't regularly giving, you're missing out. No, I'm keeping, Pastor. I'm not losing. I'm keeping. No, you're losing. You are missing out. You're missing out on the commission to bear one another's burden. You're missing out on the fruit that abounds to your account. You're missing out on a deep and valuable method of personal worship to God. Don't, don't forget that. Final point, number four. Proper giving in no way threatens your material needs. Pastor, but if I give, I won't have enough. I can't afford to give. And I would humbly ask you in response, specifically in light of what we've studied this evening, and I don't ask this in a trite way or a silly way. It's, a, it's kind of a trite saying, but nonetheless, there's validity in it. The question is not, can you afford to give? The question is, how can you afford not to give? Not everyone has been gifted to give abundantly. Just as the widow in Luke 21 had not been gifted to give abundantly, but that woman with her two mites aligned herself with every element of God's design and positioned herself to reap bountifully, trusted the Lord's provision. And this is the exhortation of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. Once again, in the context of giving, Paul writes this. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruit of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. The call for every man to give. Notice what is not mentioned here. What is not mentioned here is a certain amount. What is not mentioned here is a certain percentage. What is not mentioned here is a certain interval. What is not mentioned here is a direct person. He's not saying here, give to the church. As a matter of fact, the only, the only true instruction that we see as it relates to this is, is twofold. We see in this passage, Paul is pressuring them, is really exhorting them to give to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And then we see Paul unquestioningly, unquestioningly say, give to the needs of those who are your teachers. 
Those are really the only two contexts where we see Paul direct towards something specifically. Other than that, there's nothing here about who to give to. You know, the church says, well, you need to give your 10% and you need to give it to the, lo- the, the operation of the local church and then you need to give other things on top of your 10% which has to go to the operation of the local church to, other, to, to, to uh, special offerings and to uh, missionaries and to these things, but that's always above and beyond the, the, the tithe and, and, and we have all of these rules in place as to who to give to and how much to give to and, and, and the proper framework for giving and all of these things. But notice the simplicity with which Paul says these words and I'm going to back up the text here so you can see it. One more from here. Verse seven. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. That's the template. Give as you're purposed to give. Make sure that you're not giving begrudgingly. Make sure that you're not giving simply because you feel like you have to. Well, pastor's watching. Who's giving? No, don't. As a matter of fact, if I ever do that, put your money back in your pocket. Keep it. Not grudgingly. Not of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. That is the odor of a sweet smell acceptable unto the Lord. As you purpose in your heart, give out of the abundance of your love for the Lord, give. To worship God, give. To bear the burdens of others, give. Out of obedience to the compulsions he has laid on your heart, give. Because God loves a cheerful giver, this is what pleases God. You want to please your Lord? There is one thing I know for sure that you can do to please your Lord. Give cheerfully. I'm not saying to me. I'm not saying to this church. I'm saying give cheerfully. We bear one another's burdens. We bless the Lord. We plant seeds of generosity with confidence that they will bear the harvest of life. And so it is that we finish this epistle with our minds again turned one toward another as it ought to be. Love each other. Serve each other. Bless one another care for one another, so fulfill the law of Christ, so worship our Lord, so plant the seeds which will abound unto rewards in the life that is to come. And God help us that we would be able to orient ourselves properly to God's design in this area of life. That these blessings unto that gold, silver, and precious stones might be ours. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.